You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks so much for showing up for uh, our talk, uh, Rethinking Provisions, uh, in collaboration with uh, Craft Victoria and the artists from the show Alternative Provisions. So first of all, I wanted to start by acknowledging that we are gathering today on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land. Um, I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and also welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are joining us today. I also recognise that sovereignty was not ceded. Um, so the premise and the idea for today's kind of talk is basically uh, exploring this idea of using what might be considered alternative materials um, to some, but for others is just kind of part of a continuous and more circular and sustainable practice of art making um, as part of the theme of Melbourne Design Week, but also as part of the theme of M Pavilion for this month, which are connected, is this kind of, the, uh, one of the big themes has become this idea about a more sustainable practice and what to do with waste that emerges from any kind of practice, including art making. So uh, that, so what uh, Craft Victoria have done is kind of put together this show, which is about um, alternative materials, which all of our artists today have used in their practice and the ways that they have created interesting works from that. Uh, the, um, in ways, um, the, the website and the description often talks about, about it in the sense of the act of making good and, uh, and also about this kind of reimagining, I guess, of what an art material could be. So I first of all wanted to start by um, ask, uh, welcoming all of our artists today. We have five out of the six exhibited artists with us and unfortunately the curator of Alternative Provisions, Eliza, couldn't be with us today either, both due to kind of COVID-related concerns, unfortunately. So maybe starting from this end, um, the first question to all of you is, um, how did you encounter the materials that you ended up using for your pieces that are exhibited in the show? And um, what made you think that you could like to use them the way that you ended up doing? <laughs> Is that, yeah. That's good, okay. Um, the works I've exhibited in the show are the works that I make. I engage with clay, glaze and other materials in experimental ceramic processes. Uh, one of the things I love to do is to collect samples of the sand or dirt or rock on the land on which I practice. Um, so starting with the lively sensate stuff of place, whether it's an ocean shoreline or some bush clay, and I collect that matter and I embed it in my work. I think that I'm approaching places that have resonance to me. And so when I embed the matter in the work, I'm thinking about the way that that place is also embedded in me. 
So the works that I've exhibited in alternative provisions are embedded with uh, sands that I've collected both locally here in uh, Melbourne and also while in residence uh, in the Netherlands. Some years before doing that residency, I lived in The Hague. So when I travelled to do the residency, I returned to The Hague and took samples of that place and created works which are indelibly embedded with that place. In terms of the theme reuse, uh, which I guess has guided Eliza's cura curation of the show, uh, when it comes to reusing, I'm not thinking that I'm reusing the beach. Um, I have always wondered what is the difference between a test and a work, uh, a failure and a resolved piece. So I guess I uh, collect all my tests, all my failures, my studio discards. I'm a hoarder, I'm a collector, and I love to gradually, all of the pieces that are in alternative being uh, repaired, or at times I've, I guess, accepted those flaws. And I think that that uh, adds, a lot of, uh, adds a lot to their poetic effect. Yeah, thanks, Narelle. I realised I forgot to introduce Narelle before I just got her to start speaking. But yes, really interesting to kind of hear about and it's really fascinating. Um, I encourage you all, if you haven't already, to definitely see the Craft Victoria show. It closes on Saturday. So do keep an eye out um, and really kind of, hopefully this will give you a lot more insight into the practices of the exhibiting artists. So moving on, uh, we have Yu Fang. Hi, everyone. I'm Yu Fang. And my original background, my practice is uh, silversmithing. And I love to use silver, but I actually engage lots of uh, textile material with my practice. So even when I make my jewelry and objects, I love to use silver wire and the kinds of uh, textile. And, but in this exhibition, I actually working with uh, fishing net. It's textile, but uh, this time it's different. And in 2019, the Victoria Fishery Authority, they opened a very interesting project called Yabinet Swap Project. And they got uh, 20,000 Yabinet. And the original net is uh, actually environmental harmful and with uh, like an opera shape. And so if an uh, air-breathing animal being trapped inside, so they cannot get out. Like turtles and animals, they will just die inside. So in 2019, they changed the rule. They opened a different program. That's a fisherman. They could be into every shop, and they will swap a new open top, new net for the fishermen to use. So they got 20,000 in storage, the old one. And then they opened a program and asked, is uh, any artist you are interested in, in recycle? these nets and using these nets instead of put these nets into landfill. And so I say, me, 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 <laughs> I would love to do it. So I just make a contact with them and they are super generous. They just ship lots of nets to my place. So <laughs> you can imagine my garage. <laughs> but I got a really good partner. She, he allowed me to do this. And I do bring some of the net here but I actually use, um, this is just a small, small cut sample and still smell fishy. <laughs> <laughs> and so the original net is quite huge. So I just cut this, uh, the assembly and then I use the net as a platform. Then I put a layer of uh, rice paper on the back 
And then I put the textile and weave pattern on the, this net. And because of the layer of the rice paper, I then put this in the water and dissolve the layer. And then I can hold the pattern. It's like a fluidity, fluid pattern on the net. And the net actually cannot hold anything. Yeah, but it could hold a certain kinds of color and the pattern on this. And I didn't bring the finishing one. The finishing one is in Crave uh, Victoria. So welcome to visit tomorrow, the last day. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Yufeng. Um, definitely, it's really cool kind of work in the space. Def really looks like it's floating and really weightless as well. So moving on, we have Jesse. Hi, um, I'd like to just begin by also acknowledging the traditional lands that we're on of the Bunurang and Wurundjeri people. I work with uh, algae-based bioplastics, so I've um, developed the, the, the materials that I use in my work. And for this project, um, Eliza put it to me that I might work with another kind of reuse material. So um, the interesting thing about so um, when I I can cook it back down again. So, so the original materials exist in a circular motion. And then I was paired up with a uh, woodworker. So I basically asked Eliza if she knew anyone that had byproducts of their craft that were otherwise going to be unused. And um, she knows a woodworker named Thomas Lentini very well. And so she put me onto him and, and got me a whole bunch, a really, really big bunch of, um, of sawdust and wood shavings. And then over the course of a month or two, I fiddled around with recipes and ways of using um, those wood, wood shavings and wood dust uh, with the, the recipes that I already use with the, the algae polymer. And what you see in Craft Victoria is the kind of the, the first outcomes of those. I've got some prototype versions in here. We're not allowed to pass them around, are we? Ideally not, but you also have a lot of them. So okay, I feel yeah. like we could... I mean, touch at your own risk and don't <laughs> lick them. <laughs> eh, eh, eh. So these look quite woody. Um, you can... I'll, pass them around so you can have a look. But basically what I was trying to do as I was going through the process, if they fall apart, that's okay. These are, they're, not, they're not finished or anything. Um, is work out how to work with the material to get outcomes that were controllable and reproducible. Um, and so they have various levels of different, um, different amounts of the dust and different amounts of the shaving. And what I ended up starting to do was to make um, almost a tea with the wood shavings. And so I would get the colour, but it had a little bit less matter because you can see those ones are, are cracking a bit. Um, so that's what I did. Yeah, definitely a really interesting piece in the exhibition. It's really interesting to hear that process because when I first saw the work, I kind of thought, who thought about putting sawdust into this? Like, where did that idea come from? So it's really interesting to hear about the collaborative aspect in that. So moving on, we have Alexi. Hi. Um, thanks, Jesse. Uh, yeah, so I worked, have worked in fashion for the last couple of decades and I guess um, a few years ago I started getting quite frustrated I suppose um, very frustrated with the lack of 
uh, ecologically and ethically sustainable materials that I could find to create my design products. It just didn't seem like the types of materials that I wanted to buy for my products were available commercially. That may be something that other panelists experience as well. Um, and which led to me doing a research degree. And when I started that, I didn't really know which biomaterial or, you know, which way I would go. And I initially sort of started looking at mycelium and algae and kaidazan and, you know, there's a number of different, I guess, frontier sort of materials that are perhaps being used more in other industries like biomedical tech or food or paper or like they're sort of, they're not necessarily, they're being explored, but they're not necessarily being applied to sort of fashion and textiles. And then I guess while I was still kind of deciding which way I was going to go and I was kind of running a bunch of tests, um, lockdowns happened and then I was kind of forced to do something. I guess I wanted to do something that's very kind of studio-based but also laboratory-based. And then I kind of had to do something that I could do at home. So I ended up working with these materials because they were something I could sort of work with um, with like a food processor and a stove and like locally available um, waste-bone food waste, but also going around to like local businesses, like I was living near South Melbourne Market, so I was getting some like blueberries that were microorganisms and I think there's a sample. So sometimes, so like this one, it's actually kind of got a bit of a pinky sort of blueberry sort of colour, so a bit like us, um, you know, depending what we eat and what our lifestyles are like, like they would sort of pick up a bit of the pigmentation. Um, yeah, so this one was actually, I was growing this and it got, um, there was like an airborne contaminant that came and tried to like eat my experiment and it, so like the star shapes happened because something tried to eat it and then I like I bleached it because it was like toxic. <laughs> but then it became quite sort of stable as this. I mean, I guess if you think like say cotton as the most comparable sort of form of cellulose available to us, like, you know, we clear forest, it might take like 12 to 18 months to grow. It's known to use like heaps of, um, water and herbicides and fungicides and I mean there's a lot of toxic chemicals used and then it still gets bleached at the end anyway. So I guess if, you know, something like this where you can potentially feed it things we don't want, like food waste, then using something like bleach starts to become, I guess, less harmful to turn out a material that we might actually be able to use for something. Um, but some of the other tests, like this one's knitted <laughs> and this one's crocheted and this one actually fed to um, mycelium. So the mycelium has eaten the cellulose as food and essentially created like a new material, which is unlike the cellulose, it's um, water repellent, but then once the mycelium had eaten this bacterial cellulose, 
it became brittle, so it lost the sort of tensile strength of the bacteria. So it's like, you know, winning, winning and losing at the same time. Oh, this is another one that got contaminated and this like fungus that's grown on it is also water repellent, which is interesting. So like usually I guess we get like 40 million year old algae and turn it into a coating to make something waterproof when we want it to be waterproof. But this is actually just like a fungus that grew on another material, like a coating that has now created a waterproof coating, which is pretty interesting to me. And I wanted to do more tests when I was studying, but they were like, no, you can't deliberately grow your, um, your fungus in the lab because it might contaminate other people's work, which is fine. Um, but yeah, maybe this one's quite strong, so I'll pass this one around, but you can have a look at some of the other ones that are more brittle. Um, yeah, and the works in Craft Victoria are larger sort of explorations of the smaller samples that I have here today. So I'll stop there. Thanks, Alexi. There's such cool samples up here. Like when you started bringing them out today, I was just like, oh, I have no idea what any of these are, but they're all equally fascinating to me. So it's really interesting that how that kind of trial and error process and thinking, oh, I've encountered this problem and I don't necessarily know what the solution is, but what if I try bleaching? <laughs> that might work. So really interesting kind of how something that's so kind of less familiar to us can encourage us to figure out what is what is it through the arsenal of what we know can bring us to a newer frontier, I guess, in what fungus can do for us. Uh, my name's James. I guess inherently I look at material and process in maybe a bit of a different way sometimes. Um, a few of my other projects that I've worked on, aside from what I've got at Craft, you know, looks at a lot of waste materials or recyclable materials and tries to find different ways of, you know, making an object or adding value to that material. So for the working craft, um, it was an extension of a project called the Anthropic Bench, which was a furniture piece that I'd made a couple of years ago, um, which focused on using waste, gla waste glass. Um, the only reason I kind of discovered this material or like you know, waste material, it was really just exploring into it and, and finding out what in Australia we actually do with the material. Um, you know, we typically were just sending it overseas to China for them to recycle. And I think of 2017, we basically, like, they basically shut their doors and said, deal with your own rubbish, which I think is kind of fair enough. Um, so a lot of factories within Australia have basically just been inundated with waste materials. So Glass, for instance, um, is really only used for road filler at the moment. So with that in mind, uh, strangely looked into an age-old process called rammed earth. Um, dates back 5000 BC. And it's just the compaction of soil. Um, traditionally, they use animal's blood as a stabilizer, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, nowadays, it's typically just a cement, 10% percentage. Um, so Strangely, combining these two issues or these, these two elements, so you've got the waste glass material and this old process that, you know, there's only man, like human energy input as opposed to glass production, which is crazy high amounts of embodied energy. Um, so through a bit of experimenting, came to a 
a, a decent balance where I could actually have a solid uh, piece of rammed earth, which is just the sample that we've got on the seat um, with 10% glass fillings. So um, I guess for the craft exhibition, um, what I wanted to look at as well to kind of further that is uh, locality. So based on the different soils, um, almost emphasizing as well what the colors and tones were created based on locational ge geography essentially. Um, and that's sort of what I wanted to explore. Yeah, I don't know how much further you want me to go into it, but... <laughs> no, that's really kind of interesting to hear about. I think especially because oftentimes people think of glass as to be the quote-unquote more sustainable alternative to plastics. So it's really interesting to think about, well, at the end of its cycle when the glass can't function itself as a vessel or when it's broken into shards and it becomes really dangerous for you to use as a vessel of any kind in your house, what happens to the glass then? Mm. Um, and then you realise from there that maybe in comparison to maybe some other alternatives, it might not be as quote-unquote sustainable as you initially thought. But yeah, so the next part of kind of today's talk is going to be the, re the rethinking part of the provisions. So I've asked each of the artists up here to think of, and they may have brought in maybe, um, a material that they have not worked with that may be considered kind of less conventional when you think about art making practices. Um, so uh, for this part of the session, we're, we're gonna have the artists describe that material and then everyone else on the panel can jump in to say what they think about like how they would use it in an art making practice or context at all, um, just to see kind of this kind of process about the way to think about these byproducts and waste products um, outside of the ones that we've already used. And hopefully this kind of thinking can encourage our audience members to also imagine how they can envision how to sustainably kind of have more of a use kind of the things that they may initially consider waste in their lives um, and take them a step further than they already are. So this time we might start on this end with James. You can just mention it. Previously looked at in the past is just a natural uh, material, which is bluestone, um, basically covered all of Melbourne's CBD uh, in pavers. Um, but actually in the process of cutting this stone, it actually produces tons of sludge. Um, and then just gets thrown to landfill. So I guess how could we use that in a, in a new life or a secondary life? Yeah, so can you describe maybe, like have you encountered like any kind of descriptive properties of the sludge that you think can help us start yeah, thinking so about it? Yeah, so it's finely powdered bluestone. Um, so the sludge, it's only produced as a sludge because of the cutting process itself. So it's mixed with water and it gets processed and you're basically left with this sludge material that, um, yeah, is, is just very, very finely powdered stone. Yep. Yeah. And so when you're thinking, yeah, so you've encountered this material and is it kind of a case of you didn't know what you could do with it or you haven't just explored further enough yet to figure out yeah, how to use it? Yeah, so I've experimented uh, a little bit with this material actually. Um, I know that it melts, uh, it's an igneous rock, so it melts at around 1200 degrees. So essentially it turns back into a lava. Um, so you can recast it, um, which I've explored a little bit into. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, are, what could the other properties be, you know? Yeah, very interesting. So I now open it up to the rest of the artists to think about what they would want to try to do with it or see if it could do. 
1,200 degrees. That's my favourite firing temperature. I think that we should, like, um, get together with some sludge. Yeah, so it's powdery, not Correct. sludgy. Yeah, so you can just dry it out and then you're left with just this beautiful fine powder. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I would love to work that through a clay body. That sounds really fascinating. All right, so we have a new clay work <laughs> in the works now, Potential a collaboration, collaboration between yeah. two. Uh, anyone else on the panel? I mean, I, I think it would be good as an aggregate, really, um, in, in a similar way that I've used the the wood and th those kinds of, uh, I guess, they're a, they're a sludge of the timber. Um, yeah, in that kind of way, uh, using a different organic binder. I can see this. I can see alternative provisions number two coming up. Great. <laughs> Just fine powder from this blue stone in <laughs> anything that it will work in. Well, there's plenty of it, so... <laughs> yeah. Can you grow any mould with the sludge? You could sludgeify it? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, without... <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure how, like, do, so it's from blue, st like, do you know what minerals, it, like, I mean, it's, does it have? So it's, yeah, just a straight. nutritional value. <laughs> As in for algae. <laughs> I mean, I'm, sh <clears throat> I'm sure you could use it or put it within your soil and, and grow that way even. So, um, yeah, there'd definitely be, be natural materials within it. Yeah. I, I think this is a um, it's a recurrent theme with with these kinds of new or um, novel materials is that we we don't have a lot of information on them and it's part of a research project that I'm doing in an ongoing way with Care of Studios, um, who are conservators based in Melbourne, but we're we're actually partnering with the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York because the conservators around the world and all all around all across over to New York, they don't know enough about these materials. So when they land in their collections, they don't actually know how to care for them. Um, and similarly, you know, material designers like us, whether, you know, whatever way we found ourselves to it, um, we don't know how these materials work and we don't know how they work together. So a, a lot of our process has to start with take the materials and go like what intent it has. We don't know if it will, um, you know, be food for uh, bacterial cell cellulose. We don't know if it will bind or if it's too acidic to work with a, an algae polymer. We don't know if it's going to absorb moisture and work with a clay um, or be suitable for, you know, compacted. Um, and we don't know if it's going to work with a net. Either. So I, I think that's something to take into account with these new materials is that we really don't know how they behave and, and the testing has to be done. Um, one type of testing that I'm doing later this year is um, FTIR. Don't ask me what it means, but it's basically scans of... Fourier Transform Infrared Spectroscopy. Yes, and from that you get a graph called a spectra and from that you then have a baseline and you can compare it to other known materials and it will tell you the molecular qualities of the material you're looking at, which then give you some ideas about what it's made up of, what molecules it's made up of, how reactive they are, what bonds they might make, how their proteins might fold, and then how they might behave. They use it like for forensics. So like they find a sample on a crime scene and they're like, is it from an animal? <laughs> or is it from a 
Vegetable, mineral. Vegetable. <laughs> or is it alien? Do we not know what this... So they can essentially work out if it's like cellulose from plants or bacteria or if it's protein from animals or, yeah, if it's mineral or petrochemical. Mm. And they compare it to known things, as you said. So it's handy. I... I did it on mine. I knew that it was cellulose, but we did FTIR just to confirm that it definitely was cellulose. We got some samples back. We actually did it over at NGV with the object conservator there, and the material I had was most closely matched to bee pollen. Very interesting there. That That's where it ended up going. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is I think when I thought of this panel, this is the kind of discussion that I was really excited about, these kinds of questions, but also hearing about these materials that maybe we don't think about as much, but that are byproducts from things that we do see every day, like, you know, in all of the CBD. <laughs> all right, so now, Alexi. Sorry, what, what exactly? Did, like, something that Just I'm not working with? that is not part of your work in the show or that you haven't created a work with that you think would be interesting to maybe workshop to think of how you could turn it into an artwork of any kind? I'm going to open this up a bit. I mean, I think, like, the materials are all around us. It's like until the first industrial revolution, it's like if we needed something, we would find it, and then at the end of the use phase, it would return to the earth. It's like only in the last kind of 250 years that we've created this cycle of like creating materials that we then have to like ship somewhere and dig holes and create landfill. It's like there are materials all around us. Um, it's just a matter of, yeah, like running, you know, working with scientists, running the tests, working out, you know, doing, doing DNA. Like we also did DNA testing on this, like, there's a lot of different cellulose-secreting microorganisms. We wanted to work out, like, which particular cellulose-secreting microorganism we were working with. <laughs> and we initially ran... Um, we used Malditov, which is... I'm not going to try and... That's, like, it's so many words. Um, but I think there was, I don't know, 9,000 different microorganisms in the Malditov library and we couldn't get a match and we like kept redoing the test going like it'll match event like we must have contaminated the sample and eventually I contacted the manufacturer and I'm like you know these are the things that we're looking for like or we think it might be one of these and he's like oh no none of those are in the database and then so we took it from there to a different university and with a different database, and then we found something that was a known... Anyway, the point is, yeah, there are so many incredible materials that we all sort of have access to, like things that we don't want that could be, you know, that could really resolve some of the issues that we have, but until we kind of work with scientists and work out what they are and whether they're, yeah, whether they're a fire retardant or whether they have great tensile strength or whether they're flexible or whether they're hydrophilic or hydrophobic or like just, I guess, kind of working between design and science to work out what the properties are and then what they can be applied to and finding like fit for purpose. I think that's kind of a role that, you know, I'm interested in and perhaps all of us here today are interested in. Um, yeah. So yeah. 
That's all good. Um, put it this way, for the rest of the panellists, what's a material that you'd be interested to see how it reacts when you feed it to a microorganism? Uh, the microorganism organisms that I grow um, feed on light. And so they are the first organism that started to photosynthesize and all of the green plants that can photosynthesize have their DNA inside them. And I think when, when you get down to... Um, so perhaps I'd be interested in looking at um, the genome of the, uh, the red algaes that I work with and finding others that have the genes, finding the genes that give it the properties that make it into a polymer that's useful, and then doing research out from there and finding which others in a database have that. Yeah, that sounds super fascinating. I'm thinking because um, this year I got a pet, it's from ISPCA, a cat, and I'm not fully sure is it <laughs> response to your questions, but uh, when I look at my cats, I always look at the beautiful fur. And I'm, yes, even now I look at a beautiful dog. <laughs> I'm just so curious uh, if I research their fur, will I knew about their history and their, their context and everything. So I'm not fully sure is why you ask about microorganism of this. Yeah. I think Michelle's saying in like to to bring your two things together, if we fed your cat's fur yeah. to the microorganisms, <laughs> would they be able to like would they have the right enzymes to be able to transform the fur into food? Okay. I think that's I think that's linking your if that turns into a different material that you can work with in some way. Sounds great. <laughs> Um, I'd like to respond by doubling back to what you were saying about testing, which was really quite interesting to me. Um, but I, get, I tend to think in uh, uh, from an uh, art practice or artistic research perspective, I think of the testing very much as the work. Um, and so perhaps I'm really interested in what are the, what are the poetic effects of this uh, material? What's the effective experience that it generates in myself or that I might seek ways to amplify for the experience of an audience member. So I guess when I think about materials, I'm thinking a little bit less about understanding them in a scientific sense and more in the kind of effective uh, subjective encounter, uh, which would really, I guess, be the kind of the stuff of uh, an artist's kind of obsession, yeah. Um, and I guess for me that's around... Um, I guess the ideas of material agency are really alive to, at the moment. Um, and if something's agentive, then we're recognising it as another. Um, so I guess uh, in, that's a way of thinking about or approaching material that allows us to be curious about what it does or how it performs, which I think you're really thinking through in interesting ways, and how uh, the kind of effects it discloses in doing what it does. Yeah. Um, so I guess I, 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 um, yeah, I, I see the testing as, as, as the work. 
Yeah. Yeah, so focusing just as much on kind of the byproduct and what turns out at the end of the the consumption, um, but also just looking at it throughout as well and taking a closer kind of observation of that. Is that what you mean? Uh, yeah, and allowing that observational practice or that attentiveness to uh, reveal the possibilities of the material in terms of artistic practice or an artwork um, because I guess uh, design skills are another suite of skills that I, I don't have. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, yeah, we might move on to Jesse. Um, I'd be interested in using those nets. They sound really good. Oh, we, we have to pick one that they don't use, don't we? What would you think to do with the nets? Um, there's a few different ways you could go about it. I think using it as um, as a kind of substrate could be grow some things on it. This is like one two bacterial cellulose panels around some net. So they like secreted sort of back onto, they sort of cannibalised themselves. Like there's no glue. They just sort of knitted back into themselves as they dehydrated. So like the net is what is just like orange bag, like it's waste that really shouldn't be made at all. I hope I know this earlier <laughs> before I make my piece. Um, so yeah, you could do something like that with algae. You could make, you could sort of coat it with something else to give it different performative qualities, perhaps. But it will always uh, cover the whole net, or like uh, you could, um, because um, I just wondering is um, I'm, I'm don't, I don't know about fungals and the others. And will this create a transparency kind of? Textile. Would this? Yes. Um, depending on like how long you grow it for, what you feed it, the conditions, the temp like all of all of the sort of the factors of its growth environment affect whether you end up with something really transparent or really opaque or really strong or really brittle or. Thank you. <laughs> hey, my turn. Yeah. Um, actually, when you mentioned this, I. I am actually thinking another thing about mm -hmm. the material I use when I make my, my artwork. And it's my difficulty. It's, uh, I'm a collector, so basically all my material I keep then for 10 years, so I got a lot. But the problem is every time I finish an artwork, I need a packaging. I need a package. I need to pack my artwork. And at that time, the only thing I can use is usually plastic. And I think that is a huge difficulty for me to how to, how to deal with this. And that is a problem I face over and over again. And, and I think it's a, it's a big issue that I need to keep exploring. Probably in the future, I could use fungal as a packaging to take my artwork, keep it safe and keep it clean and, and no need to use a plastic or bubble paper any, anymore. So I think that it's a something I really can explore in my practice. Yeah, further. Yeah, if you've been around an art gallery or any kind of place that has a lot of artworks, there's bubble wrap just absolutely everywhere. 
Um, and after you use the bubble wrap, oftentimes, and I've found I've gotten into this habit myself, you try to keep it as pristine of a condition as possible in order to reuse it. So you carefully peel back each bit of tape, but there's some pieces that you just can't salvage at all. And then those you inevitably do have to throw out. So this idea of kind of, once again, a lot of conservatorial kind of practices and materials are, a lot of them are plastic based, like a lot of the sleeves that we keep photographs in and then bubble wrap as well. Um, and also, I guess, like Tyvek as well. Those kinds of polymers are all very plastic based. And, you know, once they get into a condition where they don't have their conservatorial property, whether they have too many holes or whether they've gotten wet, like we've all been wearing face masks, so I'm sure we think about this as well. Um, it does kind of ask the question about that aspect of the process where you are trying to, you know, preserve this art in order to make sure that it stays relatively clean and doesn't get contaminated and that it can be enjoyed by people uh, later down the line. But you, you don't want to be creating additional further kind of waste in the meantime. Yeah, all right, so now Norel. Thanks. To be honest, yeah. yeah. I have an enormous stash of um, packaging. Mm. Mm. Loads and loads and loads of it. I would love to know what to do with it. <laughs> Are you thinking more of what to do with it just from a, in the future when I need to package my artworks? How is the best way to do it? Or like what can you do with the packaging in art making? I'm happy to jump in. Yeah, sure. Um, I moved house in August and I was using like offcuts of bubble wrap and whatever. And then I ran out when I was like packing up my glasses in the kitchen. So I was like looking around the house for something soft that I could wrap my... So I used like some of my bacterial cellulose to wrap my glasses in and they didn't break. They survived. I mean, I guess... At the moment, because I'm, you know, just doing research, I don't have, like, tons of it. So I'm not sort of ready to, like, provide you all with <laughs> bacterial cellulose for your packaging needs. Um, but in terms of the way it performed the role, you know, it's, like, it's super low energy. It stopped the glasses from breaking. It's sort of, you know, you can scrunch it up, like, the way you can scrunch up paper... It biodegrades. Um, so like that, you know, if you were to set up one of these towers just with like bacterial cellulose growing shelves, or, you know, I mean, it's, it's very, like it, it could be a solution for that type of thing. Like it, it could be fit for purpose. It's really exciting. <laughs> Genuinely. Someone has a tower that they're not using. <laughs> And have you looked in, as much into that biodegrading process and what happens? Yeah, I did lab tests and we fed the, um, the bacterial cellulose to cellulose metabolizing fungi and they metabolized it super efficiently. So it'd be great to like work with municipalities and set up like recycling plants where like you have, um, yeah, it could be cellulose cellulose-based textile, textile waste or cardboard or paper or instead of like sending it somewhere, like I know that we do recycle paper and cardboard already, but in terms of like cellulose textile waste, 
Like you could have designated cellulose textile biodegrading plants. What do you think, Hamish? That would be good. Um, yeah, where you where you feed your cellulose waste to um, mycelium, essentially that that is known. You know, there, there's wood rotting fungus that's known to metabolize. Like that's what happens in the forest when you see a wood like a log that's fallen rotting, like there's fungus that have attacked it and worked their way in and then they turn that eventually back into soil. So, you know, we could set something like that up if we were smart. <laughs> <laughs> that's really exciting. Yeah. I just got back from Sydney um, for from the Sydney Biennale and the artistic director this year, Yosei uh, Rocker, was really proactive in trying to stop using materials in the exhibition that can't be recycled. It's a, it's a huge issue for exhibitions because they're usually up for a month or a couple of months at most and everything is then not reused or not reusable, what you were saying with the bubble wrap and all of this stuff. Um, so they did a materials challenge and they came out of it with what they were really looking for was cable ties. If you've ever done an event, you go through an, a million cable ties. So they have reusable and um, biodegradable cable ties now that came out of the UK. And they also... Are they made from? They, I think they're made from a PLA starch. Um, so a bit of a stronger bioplastic. Um, and then another base down the base, they're using, I think, chip manufacturing leftovers for the chips that weren't quite good and they get processed into um, kind of ready-to-use potato starch. And they're making Glad Wrap, but the Biennale is now kind of working with them to make bubble wrap. So that's a packaging solution. And it's compostable. very promising to hear about the fact that people are genuinely thinking about these issues that Yufeng and Narelle, you both brought up as things that you were thinking about individually. A lot of the time it's about, you know, what you have access to and therefore it's about bigger structures and systems being able to facilitate um, the correct processes in order to allow things to biodegrade properly and dispose of things properly and to produce and manufacture them properly. But it's really promising to hear, Jesse, that other people and people who have a little bit more kind of power authority within um, the art world are also thinking about these um, kinds of conundrums and hopefully um, uh, inviting people to propose their solutions to them as well. Um, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm just... What? Audience questions? Yeah. So, yeah, now we'd like to direct it to the audience if you have any questions in relation to any of the things that we've discussed uh, today at all or about kind of to any of the artists? Thank you. Um, oh, sorry. Um, we've kind of touched on it a little bit a few times, but what you perceive to be the role of conservation and you sort of want your work to be conserved or, you know, do you, because you work with sort of these types of materials, are you making artwork with the goal that they are sort of ephemeral and they will be sort of reused or, or repurposed into, into other things? I wear, um, I guess, three different hats in my practice. So there's there's one where I'm making artistic works and, and those I definitely do have a um, 
conservatorial overlay and that's why we're doing the research it sprung out of um, conservative departments not knowing what to do um, the other side is a, as a as a designer um, and and the third one is is more as a fabricator doing kind of view to doing things on a larger scale and so in each of those there's a different um, function that I'm after from the conservating point of view so in one of them it, it's um, to, to know how long they should be foreseeably kept as is. And it's also a conversation with um, conservators around the world is, you know, are these ephemeral artworks? Should they be kept as they were the day they were dropped off? Or is it, a, you know, is it something that should be more treated like a performance work or a durational piece that is, you know, you're, you shouldn't keep fighting time? And part of that is to find out exactly how long we can expect these materials to last and in what conditions. Um, in the design point of view, it's more about having something that's circular and, and that will politely degrade, but it's also about knowing, um, you know, when, for instance, for a commercial job, you should quote in and say, this will last for 12 months and then we'll come in and rebuild it. Um, or, you know, we'll take it away and melt it down and remake it again. And the same thing for the, um, for on a larger scale is you, you need to still know the answer, but, um, but definitely I think what we need is materials that don't last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I thank you for the question. And it's a, it's a question recently I've been asked. And because originally I'm making silver, so this lasts forever. And, but in 2019, I, I have an opportunity to have a residency in Belgium. And then there, it's actually a jewelry institute invitation. But at that time, I make a decision. I want to make an artwork. It's a land art. So it's in Belgium. And it's a land art. Not going to last long. He waved super hot. And then I, I basically weaving the weeds in the ground in the summer tides. And, but when I made this, I found that the ephemeral quality of the, the natural material is actually the most beautiful part. And it actually reminds me of the circle of the natural, and I really love it. And also, when I make this artwork, I knew that, okay, after 10 days, I'm going to leave. But I, I, in this case, um, actually I built a connection with uh, the foundation, the host, and she regularly took photos for me in the fall season, during the raining day, during the snowing day. And, and without this artwork, we cannot build a real connection. We then become a lifelong friend. So I think um, the value of uh, how our work could be sometimes is uh, could be open. So that part is uh, what I think is quite important today. It's 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 different. Silver hour is still important, but I think I I also appreciate the beauty of uh, how to work with uh, as a community with people to build the engagement as well. That's oh. Um, yeah, much like silversmithing, ceramics has uh, conventionally preoccupied with the enduring object, the enduring and the impermeable. Um, and perhaps by uh, sort of setting that aside, 
and exploring uh, ceramic processes with perhaps uh, a little disregard for what the uh, final outcome might be. Um, yeah, it, it opens up all sorts of really wonderful material discoveries and I think that uh, the artworks kind of resemble us as people a little bit more because they're precarious and short-lived and um, uh, often uh, in need of repair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if I might jump in. Um, I think for my own works, for this particular range, uh, it's almost highlighting how long a product can last in a way. Uh, they are lighting pieces at craft. It's the difference between the glass bottles, for instance, comparing that to something as long-lasting as rammed earth. So, you know, they are also functional items and as industrial designers, they always try and teach you to put in narrative and, and make sure you, at the end of the day your product can be handed down to generations and, you know, create an heirloom essentially. So that's, for my work anyway, what I was trying to achieve. Yeah. Do you want answers from everybody? <laughs> if you don't have an answer, that's fine. I, I think it's about, just quickly, um, like, it being fit for a purpose. So I guess, you know, if you're my client and you come to me, it would be a discussion around like, you know, what are you going to use this for? Like, what are you, you know, what are the sort of performative qualities that it has to embody? Like, do you, you know, do you want it to biodegrade? Do you want it to last forever or somewhere? In, you know, I mean, I guess these days we can sort of create coatings and, you know, there are, I guess, like the materials that I'm working with, if they're, um, you know, inside at sort of 21 degrees, you know, if they're comfortable and it's sort of dry, like I did a, I made a little prototype for a speaker cover the other day. And I think if it was just like, you know, if it was treated the way like a quality sort of speaker is treated, it's like, you don't want to get it wet. You don't want to kick it. You don't want to like drop it or, you know, if it's sort of handled with care and it's sitting inside your house, it will last a really long time. I don't know, get some hot chips and you need a little biodegradable thing to put in it and then you just want to like dump it somewhere or whatever. You know, it's like it, it could just biodegrade and be safe and not rely so much on consumers to be so responsible about, oh, I've got to take my batteries to Officeworks. Oh, but I've got to take my soft plastics to Woolworths. Oh, but I've got to put my glass in my glass bin. And I mean, like, I guess design products, there it seems like, I've heard there's a stat like 70% is often referred to as like 70% of the issues of the end of life could be resolved in the design phase but it seems like often it's kind of more like 0% or 1%, you know, like there's so much left on consumers, but also municipalities and governments, state governments, federal governments to resolve all of our issues. But really design has such an important role to play in, you know, the materials and the way, like whether they're designed for disassembly, whether they you know, need a specialised environment to be, you know, whether they need to be heated to 1,200 degrees or whether they need to be eaten by uh, wood-rotting fungi or whether they need to be, uh, you know, exploded with plasma to get, you know, which is what they're sort of looking at now with 
e-tech, e-waste, it's like you hit it with heaps of energy and then like the different, you know, what is there, like 23 different heavy metals metals. in a phone. (laughs) So it's like some of it sinks to the bottom, some of it's magnetised, some of it floats. Like, I mean, there's... There's so much, there's so many different ways of managing. I think you were, I mean, when we think about um, conservators in this, in this context, it's, it's thinking about the, the museum space and I think that's the, the micro level and you've got that, you know, everlasting thing that wants to be kept the same for an er- ever and ever. But then I think when you talk about like um, conservation in the outside world, it has a really different meaning and it's those, the, the play of, of those two in the, in the micro and the macro, I think, for these materials as well. Definitely. Hopefully that's given everyone a lot to think about and a lot of things that they can start to ponder on. Um, That also concludes today's talk, bringing their really wonderful insight to the the theme of alternative provisions. Um, Please, everyone, if you haven't seen the Craft Victoria show yet, try to get down there um, by Saturday. Um, Hopefully this has also given you more incentive, if you have seen it, to also see it again and really kind of think about these ideas that we've talked about while you're looking at the works that these wonderful artists have created. Then, yeah, thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Mm-hmm.